Shalom and welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Hankus Netsky. Hankus is chair of New England Conservatory's Contemporary Improvisation Department and founder and director of the Klezmer Conservatory Band, an internationally renowned Yiddish music ensemble. He has composed extensively for film, theater, and television, and collaborated, performed, and recorded with many well-known artists, including Itzik Perlman and Theodore Bakel. He's also the author of Klezmer Music and Community in the 20th Century Philadelphia. Hankus has worked with the Yiddish Book Center over the past 40 years in areas of education, oral history, and exhibition. And of course, he's been a large part of the Yiddish Book Center's annual Yidstock, the Festival of New Yiddish Music. Welcome, Hankus. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Great it's such a treat. It's always a treat to have a chance to speak with you. And, um, I think, needless to say, for anybody who knows you, you are always doing something new and interesting. <laughs> well, important to keep some projects going, and, uh, you know, this is a, one of my favorites, uh, what we have coming up here. Great. Yeah, I wanted to chat with you today about the KCB, Klezmer Conservatory Band's 40th anniversary, which happened to coincide with the Yiddish Book Center's 40th anniversary. Coincidence? I'm not sure, but we'll explore that. Um, and uh, we've got an upcoming program about these two anniversaries, which will be celebrated um, on Sunday, January 24th. More about that later. Um, and again, I don't want to give our listeners a, have to or have to give our listeners a spoiler alert about that program. But um, I wanted to chat with you about the anniversary and some of your thoughts as you look back on the past 40 years. But let's start with how did you come to music and ethnography? Well, music was really in my family. Um, on my mother's side, there were uh, five musicians that I grew up knowing, knowing about. My grandfather, his brother, my Uncle Sam, and then my, um, the, the um, two brothers of my mother, uh, my Uncle Marvin and Harold, were professional musicians, and my Uncle Jerry, who was married to uh, my grandmother's sister. So um, they all were playing music. They all were playing all kinds of music. Um, I finally figured out at some point when I was young that, they, that one of the things they were playing was Jewish wedding music and that some of that Jewish wedding music was music I wasn't familiar with at all. Um, but music was very much a part of the family. My grandfather started me on piano very young. By third grade, I was playing saxophone. And I also liked the music that was going on at the synagogue. So um, I would get to know each cantor that came along at our synagogue as well as I could. I sang in the choir there, uh, led the children's choir. And by the time I got to high school, I had several bands of my own. And eventually at the high school, I led the marching band and I organized a jazz big band. So um, it was pretty clear that when I went on to uh, higher level study, I was going to go to music school and become a professional musician. Now the second question, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> um, the whole idea of, you know, the eth ethnological side of klezmer music, Jewish well, music. Well, the, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, ethnomusicology is often historically the sub the study of someone else's culture uh i mean theoretically it's the study of music in culture but 
historically, a lot of ethnomusicologists have studied the music of others. But in my case, I grew up playing a lot of the music of others. Um, it was really at the time of Roots revivals, and there was a lot of music to play. There was blues, and there was Greek music, and there were was 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 jazz, and there was African music, and uh, Latin music, and all kinds of things um, to play. Um, and if you're a musician doing that, at some point you might think to yourself, "Wait a minute, like okay, but." Do we have any music? Is there Jewish music that uh, some roots music that might really be there that and why don't I know it? Um, so that really kind of got to me, um, not from the point of view of a scholar, really from the point of view of a musician. Actually, in fact, I remember saying to my ethnomusicology teacher at New England Conservatory, um, I, I don't want to do my papers on Indian music. I'm going to do them on Jewish music. And then I went to find the books about Jewish ethnic music uh, that would be my references. And the last one that was any good at all was written in 1929. And that was a problem. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then as I kept looking into it, I realized that um, Jewish studies, which of course is the academic field, well, also Judaic studies, which is the more sort of religious oriented academic field, um, that in both of those fields, in, in Jewish studies, they'd written only about Jewish classical music or Jewish art music. And in Judaic studies, they only wrote about cantorial music and religious music and left out were Yiddish folk song, Yiddish theater, Hasidic music, um, and especially the music of the klezmer. Eastern European Jewish wedding music, which was in fact the music in my own family. So that attracted me to getting into uh, this kind of study and really kind of studying uh, the ethnographic uh, literature on Jewish music, which luckily uh, in the 1980s, um, Mark Slobin, a brilliant um, professor who was a then uh, only recently retired from uh, Wesleyan University, but uh, he was in full swing in the 1980s and 90s, and he started writing books that could be used um, and really almost created the entire literature in English, honestly, by translating Russian books, uh, by, um, by being part of, of NEH-funded projects to collect songs and um, incredible things. And they all started happening in the 1980s, which coincided when I, with when the Book Center started and when the band started. So it was in the late 70s, early 80s that this even became possible in this country. It's, it's really interesting to hear you say that. And again, I don't want to spoil what will be on the public program, the conversation between you and Aaron Lansky, which is um, moderated by Kenneth Turan. But hearing you say this, it's interesting because what led Aaron to rescue the books was the lack of available books in Yiddish for studying. So you both went off in a direction of looking for content, um, and then it resulted in some really marvelous things happening. When Back then, um, in the early 80s, can you speak a little bit about the kind of Yiddish community and who who was around for you as you began to explore this sort of cultural side of Yiddish? Well, as for the community that was around 
it was amazing who was around actually when we started exploring. I actually started exploring in 1974. And, um, you know, looking around because, you know, there was no possibility of academic study. I mean, this is very important. Unless, I mean, if I spoke fluent Russian and had access to a, uh, a very obscure library in Kiev, I might have been able to find something. Um, there's one book in Hebrew on Klezmorum uh, at that time. But um, really, um, activism was the only possible path. And I'm always finding, you know, I run into academics uh, sometimes. I remember when I worked at the book center, I would run into these people who would say, why are you bothering with oral history and fieldwork? I go like, well, how about the fact that there's absolutely no literature on the field that I'm in? And they would be, oh, of course there is. And of course they would be completely wrong. Um, and so, what we, but what there was, <laughs> there were people. There were people you could talk to. There were people you could interview. There were people you could work with to learn. So um, in the early days, when I first started doing this, it was members of my own family. Um, I could meet with my Uncle Jerry. And Uncle Jerry had written down books and books of music, in fact, that he had transcribed from the Klezmorum he had worked with in the 1920s and from recordings. And my Uncle Sam had kept my, my grandfather's, my great-grandfather's record collection, actually. So I could record that. And then once I had those, I could go to other people and say, hey, I know something. So would you like to talk about this? Because I know you know about it. And then people would say, oh, absolutely. Yes, I used to play in bands in the 1920s. Or I knew these musicians on this recording. I mean, people who were in their 90s at the time. You know, um, Ruth Rubin became a real mentor. Uh, she had single-handedly co collected over 2,000 Yiddish folk songs. Um, starting in the 1940s. And she found in her entire time, there was no support at all from the Jewish community, but she just had to do it. She was an activist. And that's what she said to me. The first thing she said to me is, you're not going to get support for this. You just have to do it. Uh, so Aaron and I really both have that in our backgrounds, that we were activists, but Ruth was still around at that time. Uh, 1985, I met Ben Galing, who was a Yiddish actor born in 1898, and he still had a radio show going in Boston. And I thought, oh my God, I'll offer to help him with the radio show. I mean, who knows how long he'll be around. Well, in fact, he lived to, to, to be 100, and for 15 years, I did that radio show with him. So wow. um, these were people who could teach me the tradition um, instead of being able to go out and find books. And the truth is that that has been a guiding principle for me all these years is to find people um, in addition to whatever literature is out there, because the context is just so important with any culture. And it, it was not gone. You know, the culture wasn't gone. What was gone was one, you know, the archives had these like in I mean, you know, you'd walk, you'd go to Evo and all this stuff was locked in the fourth floor storage room. And I'd go to Gratz College in Philadelphia. And again, the 78s are in a storage room. It was like somebody decided, and I know this is true uh, in the Jewish community, that immigrant culture was transitional. We were going to move on from it. Let's put it away. Nobody's going to care about it. And we're done with it. It was just transitional. And obviously, you know, uh, we're, we're moving to a more modern time and, and, and we're done, but it was not true at all. So I, I really had to go uncover it. 
Um, and thankfully, thankfully you did. And I, I, you know, again, this is a whole other conversation about the sort of uh, the digital universe and how it's um, it's reconnecting so many people who are working in different pockets um, of the world and, and aspects of the culture now um, to surface good things, which then segues for me into um, an aspect of this conversation. You recently presented what again, was a really just tremendous public program for us um, about Moash and folkways. And I asked you then, and I'm going to ask you again in the context of this, if you could share your thoughts about what might have been lost to us had Mo not recorded under his label in folkways, and I think, again, this speaks to this whole conversation. Um, and I would also ask how that inspired, you know, or kind of informed your work. Well, you know, what might have been lost uh, had Mo not recorded for folk race. I mean, Mo was in there in the 1940s, and but he was also, see, see Mo Ash was a figure who, of course, um, was working in Yiddish radio uh, starting in the 1920s, I believe. And so he, um, he knew what was out there, and he also knew that it was gone. In other words, that it wasn't being perpetuated. So so uh, he, 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 but he had other ideas. I mean, you know, his partner in crime was Albert Einstein, right? I mean, that's very interesting. It was Albert Einstein. He told this idea to Albert Einstein that, oh, maybe I'll record the, the music of the people of the world. And Albert Einstein said, good idea. Yes, somebody should do that. <laughs> so, so, so that was good. Um, but, you know, the issue really was that, um, in, in, in the mainstream Jewish community, there was no, not only no support for it. I mean, you know, Solomon Schechter had talked about getting rid of Yiddish in one generation. Um, David Philipson, who was from the reform movement, uh, from a, you know, not, not from a Zionist perspective, just from a perspective of moving people to, toward being Americans, uh, was equally obsessed with the idea of getting rid of all the traces of the ghetto. Um, and, you know, um, so, so we had these people who, who, who really were lobbying for burying this, put it away, get rid of it, you know, uh, either from the perspective of, of building a new identity for the Jews, uh, either in a Jewish homeland or in America, and that this is what they had to lose, that this represented uh, something that were, you know, something, something that was, was in fact... Uh, a, a, a history that the Jews really needed to get rid of. Um, that it was, you know, it was something that, something that was, was negative, something that was a mistake, something that was, you know, the, the absolute opposite. Um, and this was a big problem, <laughs> really, because, you know, so, so, so someone like Mo Ash, he didn't share those sentiments at all. He just saw culture, history, roots for all peoples of the world. They need to be documented. But in the case of the Jews, it was a particularly difficult situation because of the ideologies, especially in the United States. Um, and, and that was really kind of in the way of keeping these traditions alive uh, during that period. I, oh, but I do want to say one other thing, which is that they were alive. It's just that they were presented as nostalgia. Mm -hmm, right. so in other words, it was only for the old people. It was not for our children because 
our children, you know, um, would be damaged if they learned this. It was as if, you know, as it, you know, they, they, this was a transitional culture, and it was it was characterized by educators as as the failures of the Jews of the past. Mm-hmm. And well, again, a longer conversation about that, but um, a really good point it, um, in terms of this was not necessarily, yeah, nostalgia. Um, would you uh, talk a little bit about the Sunday program, Hankus, um, which is happening again, and we can give more information to listeners in a minute, January 24th. But um, let's not uh, have the need for spoiler alerts because I think listeners will really want to come to your program um, and the conversation between you, Aaron, and, and Kenneth. Um, with oh, a this is great. Um, so how do I tell you about the program without telling you about the program? Well, you're skilled <laughs> at doing all of that, Hank. No, just tease out a little bit about what the construct is for it. Um, and uh, again, oh, really? I really Okay. Okay. It. Yeah. No, no. The program, in fact, I mean, you have to see the program <laughs> in order yes, to, exactly. in, in order to uh, experience this program, because the program not only includes uh, a wonderful conversation. I mean, I, it couldn't have gone better because Kenny Turan is so good at facilitating this. Um, and w- both of us were really, um, really, really happy to get to talk about the 40 years and also to talk about it with each other in the room. So that was so beautiful, you know, to get to do that uh, because Aaron and I um, have had parallel careers as activists um, in, in, in bringing back this material and in moving to another you know, time where, as you say, there are internet resources now and you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, Aaron actually expresses it uh, in the movie by you know, talking about how we're a bridge. You know, we, the, the two of us are bridges from that older generation to the younger. And I think that's a great way of seeing it. Um, so, but, but the thing that I can't do right now is show you the clips. <laughs> so, so they're at least um, historically, you know, going from 1984, I'd say, till very recently. I mean, I think one of them's from last October, actually, just before COVID, when we were playing down in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and um, it's, you know, it's basically looking at the history of the book center in the last 40 years and some pivotal historical moments in that history parallel to historical moments in the revival and resurgence. And by resurgence, I mean using this culture as a point of departure for creative work um, in the musical world. And so it's 40 years of really kind of snapshots of what that looks like for bringing Yiddish literature out there to the world and snapshots of what it looks like to bring Yiddish and klezmer music out there to the world and and uh, and how that has progressed, where it's gone, where it's been successful, and what the challenges still are. And in the process of working on this, um, what surprised you most as you reflected on the past 40 years and what do you see for the future? Well, in the process of working in the film, um, I've just had a blast because, of course, you know, I reviewed all kinds of video footage and got to see, I mean, I have to say, 
the biggest surprise was watching, you know, films of us looking so young. (laughs) 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 Because I was 25 when this band started and Aaron was 25 when he started the Yiddish Book Center. And, um, you know, most of the members of my band were not even 20 yet. So looking at that early footage is really fun because, you know, um, there are, my, my band currently is composed of nine members and the truth is I just thought about it yesterday and realized that of the nine members of my band, six members of that band have been in the band at least 33 years. <laughs> so, so that's really fascinating. I mean, one of the things, you know, we, we unearthed old photos and, you know, in the background, you see these photos of the band over the years and, and these, these six people just somehow getting older and older. <laughs> But, um, but so that, that was really cool, you know, kind of to watch that and, and, and watch people, you know, continue to do this for all those years. I mean, you know, Jim Gutman and I are the only two who have been there since the very beginning, our bass player. Um, but, but, you know, 33 years is a long time. Um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it, so it's really interesting to, you know, to kind of look at it that way. And then what you notice also is, um what the, what what the um, the visual aspects of the the um, you know what I, I let's say the visual expression you know of what we were doing um, how the, how that was expressed just today this we're about to send JPEGs of of posters of the band uh, playing in Europe in the 1990s so we photographed like six posters and they're unbelievable I mean just how this is the Yiddish resurgence in Europe starting, you know, in 1990. How did that happen? What did it look like? How did people express that? Uh, how did they talk about it? Um, that's been really amazing to review the, uh, the literature, to review the interviews and see how, how we were talking about it all these years and see how Aaron was talking about it too, because, because there were writers who wrote about both of us in their columns. I have to say, having seen some of the visuals um, and wearing a different hat, it is just um, incredibly fun to see kind of some of your first flyers, even. Um, those early <laughs> I drew all of them. <laughs> they are just deliciously wonderful. Uh, you know, everybody who's going to be um, in the virtual audience for this program is going to get quite a treat. Um, it really is. It's a journey, um, and the visual journey as well is so strong uh, paired with both of your stories. Um, it's just great. Um, so for our listeners, um, again, you can register to be in the virtual audience for the program by visiting yiddishbookcenter.org slash events, and you will find a listing for this event, and you can register to be in the Zoom audience, uh, which will be um, a blockbuster audience, as we've we've seen. We have to keep expanding the virtual venue to accommodate everybody. Um, So, Hankus, thanks so much for joining me today, for all of your work over the past 40 years, for everything you're going to do going forward. Um, Really looking forward to to viewing the program and uh, eventually to having you back on stage at the Yiddish Book Center for a live performance. But in the meantime, again, um, we hope that all of our listeners will register today um, while there is still room in the virtual audience, Yiddish Book Center 
org slash events. Thanks, Hank S. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. Stay well, and uh, we'll see you on Sunday, January 24th. Yay. All right. Take care. Yeah. Zyka Zin. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon. Mm-hmm.